0: Welcome to The Word at Westminster, a podcast with talks, studies, interviews, sermons, and more from Westminster Church in Barrie, Canada. It's about learning and living God's Word. The Lord's Supper. I'm releasing this episode close to World Communion Sunday, so I thought it would make sense to do some teaching on the use, abuse, and true meaning of communion. To do so, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul speaks about this subject. I'm not going to get into the nuances of where and how various Christian traditions have disagreed about some of these topics. Here's how this episode is laid out. I'll take us through the passage, providing background and meaning to what it teaches. Uh, When that is done, I'll provide some summary comments about the meaning of communion for us to keep in mind today, especially since some of these meanings can get neglected. I hope this is useful and helpful, not only as a podcast on 1 Corinthians 11, but as a resource for those who want to go deeper with the meaning of this sacrament. First, background to the letter. 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul in the early 50s. He wrote it to new believers from the church in Corinth, a city in Greece. The city proper was close to 100,000 people. It would be much bigger if you included the GCA, the Greater Corinth Area. It was very diverse in terms of ethnicity, religion, social status. In one of the Star Wars movies, Obi-Wan Kenobi describes a spaceport named Mos Eisley with words we might also apply to ancient Corinth. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Clearly, Obi-Wan did not think too highly of Mos Eisley. When it comes to Corinth, let's just say that it did not have the best reputation for upstanding behavior. Uh, As is evident throughout the letter, it seems that the values in the surrounding culture, or should I say lack of godly values, were exerting an influence on this young church, and they were struggling with what to believe and how to live as a people who were supposed to be distinct. But what concerns was Paul addressing in this section of the letter? He wrote to correct abuses and misuses with the Lord's Supper. This was also commonly called uh, communion or the Eucharist. The word Eucharist, just so you know, comes from a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. So when people say communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, they are referring to this same sacrament. Paul had been ejected from the local synagogue and went next door to the house of a man named Titus Justus. See Acts 18 verse 7. So The Corinthian church to whom he was writing was gathered not in a formal building for the purpose of worship and fellowship, but in various homes of individuals, certainly including that of Titus Justice. And this was very common in the early church movement. This is way before the days of paved parking lots and charitable status. Many houses in Corinth had an inner room and a larger outer area. This is important because this setup may have contributed to the ongoing issues. Here's what was most likely happening. The richer people were eating inside first and the poorer members were eating later outside. They were celebrating communion in a way that highlighted their differences based on socioeconomic status, not their common faith in Jesus. This was leading to problems, obviously. Since in chapter 11 Paul replies to specific abuses with communion, we can essentially reconstruct what the issues were. Let me take a stab at it as if I were a member of the Corinthian church and were writing to Paul. Dear Paul, Greetings in the Lord. We know communion is important, but things aren't going very well. When we celebrate communion, some of the richer members eat first inside, and some of the poorer members of the church eat later in the outer court. People are given different amounts of food. That seems to be the custom here in Corinth, and that is causing a problem. In fact, afterwards, some of the poorer members are hungry, and still yet others stagger around drunk. We also kind of forget what words we're supposed to say when we do it. Can can you remind us? We think it was something Jesus said when he was in Jerusalem near the time of his death. We're not sure. In general, people aren't very thoughtful about what happens. I'm pretty sure outsiders scratch their heads because of us. With thanks, your brothers and sisters in Corinth. With that in mind, let's look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first part, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate? Those who have nothing, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Pause. Where Paul commends them in other ways, he does not do so here. He is not impressed. In Acts 18, we learn that Paul was ejected from the synagogue. As already stated, he went to the house of someone named Titus Justus, and so this is most likely one of the locations where the believers met. Paul goes on to say that their practices humiliate people who are more needy. Remember that the church is very diverse from a socioeconomic perspective. This was one of the things that made it stand out. But old customs can die hard, including customs involving food, which reinforced where someone was on the social ladder. Uh, That was common in the wider Greek and Roman world, but it should not be that way in the church of Christ. We are all one in him. As a result, the Corinthians needed to adjust their thinking and give extra care to not exclude or embarrass people of more meager means. In his book Fearless, Max Licato recalls being in a worship service where they were celebrating communion. A few rows behind him, he could hear a father explaining the meaning of communion. What is that, Daddy? He heard the father explain the meaning of the bread and then the wine. Licato turned around to give the father a nod. But when he did so, he realized that the father was none other than David Robinson, the professional basketball player, 10-time all-star, two-time champion, uh, Olympic (laughs) medal winner. In fact, he'd just played a game a night or two before and would be back on a plane a day or two later. But in between the big league court high-pressure games and airplane flights, he was in church explaining the meaning of communion to his six-year-old son. The reason I say that here is because there is an equalizing effect of communion something which Paul was trying to teach the Corinthians. No matter your fame or obscurity, no matter your plump bank account or lack thereof, no matter your academic degrees or dropout record, all are one around the table of the one who gave his life for us. We are all in need of his grace, and he gives it to us. Let's continue. Paul says that their custom for celebrating communion is so bad that it does more harm than good. There is no order, verse 20, We sense that they shared communion in the context of a wider meal that could actually fill your stomach. Think full plates, not uh, modern bite-sized wafers. Some people weren't getting enough. Others had too much. Again, those in the nicer area inside probably had more food and of higher quality, and those outside had less and worse. Others still got drunk, clearly indulging in too much wine. Oh, dear, call a cab. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? When he says this, he implies that their normal meals should occur elsewhere, at least if they want to preserve that specific custom around, you know, going along with social status and food. When they gather together as believers, all are one in Christ. Next, Paul gets back to basics and delivers to them the central meaning of what they should say and do when they share the Lord's Supper. As he does this, he hearkens back, of course, to the Passover meal Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. See, for example, Luke 22. So let's listen in to Paul. And as we do so, you might find the words familiar. And that's because they're used by many of us when we guide congregations through this sacrament. Let's pick it up, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Pause. These four verses constitute the core elements in the actual act of communion. Let me highlight a few things. First, Paul is about to teach them what he received from the Lord, meaning Jesus. What Paul says comes directly from him. He's not making it up. He invites them to go back in their minds to that all-important night when their Lord was betrayed. Recall that after the meal, Jesus and his followers went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was handed over to the soldiers by Judas, hence the word betrayed. They are remembering a specific historical moment. Second, there is a layer of meaning behind what he is uh, about to say, which we can easily miss if we forget that original context. Initially, Christ gave these directions at a Passover meal. That was the night he was betrayed, but What was the Passover all about? The Passover was a festival which remembered and celebrated when the Hebrew people were freed from slavery in Egypt by their gracious, merciful, and all-powerful God. He demonstrated how He was mighty to save. The connection we need to see is this. Just as God freed His people from slavery by way of the exodus from Egypt, so God frees His people from slavery to sin by way of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In Egypt, death passed over the Hebrews because of the blood of a lamb without blemish, which was smeared on their doorposts, see Exodus 12. For Christians, spiritual death passes over them because of the blood of the perfect lamb of God Jesus shed on the cross. His blood gives life and spares us from death. Remembering that context helps us appreciate a rich layer of meaning that we sometimes forget at communion. Second, bread and wine are used to represent something. Paul states it clearly, right? Quoting Jesus, the bread represents the body of Jesus. The bread is broken just as Jesus' body was, in a sense, broken by the crucifixion he experienced. An important prophecy about Jesus as God's perfect suffering servant is found in Isaiah 53. Verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That prophecy was fulfilled hundreds of years later by Jesus on the cross. When the bread is broken, we are told by Jesus himself why we are to do it. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants us to remember him, not only his life and teachings, but specifically what he did on the cross. The fact that the bread is broken is supposed to draw our attention to that event and to its meanings. He did it for you. The cross is good, not because of what happened to Jesus, but because of what happened for us. By his wounds, you are healed. It's also hard for us not to think about Jesus' words in John six thirty-five: I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yes, Jesus is the one who nourishes us ultimately. Now, turning to the cup, which had wine in it, it represents Jesus' blood, which was poured out on the cross. We are told very specifically that this is the new covenant in his blood. His blood that is poured out is the new covenant. But what is a covenant and why is it new? My Luvenita Greek dictionary defines covenant like this, the verbal content of an agreement between two persons specifying reciprocal benefits and responsibilities. So it is a sacred binding contract between two parties. The two parties here are God and his people. God agrees to be our God and we agree to be his people. If we keep our covenant agreement with God, He continues, of course, to be our God and blesses us. And if we fail to keep our covenant agreement with Him as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we can expect punishment. It is a sacred, binding contract of mutual loyalty. He rules and blesses us. We serve Him and bless others as His people. When people make an agreement, they tend to do something uh, which shows that agreement. If two people make a deal about something, they probably shake hands. When a man and a woman get married, they often exchange rings as a sign of their covenant. In fact, I say those exact words in a wedding ceremony. Now, in these two examples, a handshake and then the exchange of rings, they are the sign of that agreement. In the ancient world, blood was sometimes involved in sealing such an agreement, a covenant. An example would be God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Animals were cut in half, blood was spilled. God commanded this while he promised to give Abraham many descendants. Blood is a sign of both life and death. Blood is a sign of both life and death. Such is the seriousness of covenant agreements. Now with respect to God, we need to remember that He is always faithful. He will never let us down. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, has a prayer that captures this well. You are nailed to your people by your everlasting love. Hmm. The cross reminds us of the extent of God's loving and loyal commitment to His people. For our part, we are broken and fail to demonstrate continued loyalty to God. We don't hold up our end of the covenant agreement. That is part of the reason why Jesus is such good news. We failed to be faithful to God, so Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who lived a life of steadfast obedience, love, truth, and holiness, died in our place. We're the ones who should have our bodies broken and blood outpoured, but He paid the consequence for our disobedience. In Christ, God kept not only his end of the deal, but ours as well. Jesus calls this a new covenant. Close readers of the Bible will think to themselves, I've heard that phrase before. Well, that's because it comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. There we learn that God will put his instruction right in people's hearts. It will be within them. Previously, it had been written on the tablets of stone as in the Ten Commandments. In Jeremiah 31, we are told that God will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Well, Jesus inaugurates this new covenant. His spirit lives within his people, teaching and guiding them to walk faithfully in his ways. At the Last Supper, Jesus made this clear and demonstrated how his life, sacrificial death, and resurrection inaugurated this new covenant relationship between God and his people. In verse 26, Paul indicates that whenever we do this, Meaning whenever we break the bread and drink the cup in this way, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we are proclaiming the significance of what Jesus did for us on the cross until that day when he comes again in glory as judge and savior and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Whereas preaching proclaims the good news about Jesus with words, the sacrament of communion proclaims the good news about Jesus with symbolic actions. It is the gospel visually depicted with a mini-drama. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, "...in the word preached, the saints hear Christ's voice. In the sacrament, they have his kiss." I recall a story about a soldier in Nagasaki. He saw a sign on a building which said Methodist Church. He went in. There were only 20 people, and the soldier didn't speak the language. He only knew one word, the one which meant brother. Well, someone said it to him, and he felt at home, even in a faraway land. That day they were having communion, and even though he didn't understand the words, he knew what they meant, and he saw the gospel visually depicted as the clergy person broke the bread and lifted the cup. Those actions transcend languages. All barriers were broken down around the table of the crucified Jesus. Before we move on, and as a point of practical interest, many churches substitute juice for wine. Why is that? Well, sometimes it's to be sensitive to the fact that alcohol is a real temptation for some people, and that younger members shouldn't drink it. The reason juice is used, and specifically grape juice, is because both come from grapes. That's the common element. When it comes to bread, I have heard that when people don't have access to normal bread, sometimes in emergency situations, and sometimes in parts of the world where bread is either very expensive or uncommon, uh, that they substitute crackers, yams, or even rice. So having reminded the Corinthians about the words to use, Paul then forcefully warns them about not doing this in an unworthy manner. Continuing at verse 27, "'Whoever therefore eats the bread "'or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner "'will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. "'Let a person examine himself then, "'and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. "'For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body "'eats and drinks judgment on himself.'" That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So starting at verse 27, we see that it is important to approach the sacrament with the right attitude if you partake in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, meaning that you will be guilty of sinning against the good news of Christ himself. That is a very serious thing. In his commentary on this passage, the reformer John Calvin says, to eat unworthily is to ruin the pure and proper use by our own abuse, End quote. It's a warning against thoughtless irreverence. In this context, I think Paul's meaning is also a reference, and perhaps even the primary reference, to partaking in a way which disrespects the poor among them. Recall that that was the original problem. If, if we are celebrating communion in a way that shows some people have a higher social or economic status than others, then we are partaking in a way that is unworthy. Just think about how out of step that would be in light of what Jesus has, has done for us on the cross. The Lord of glory has suffered through the shame of the cross for lowly, humble sinners like us, and yet we have the audacity to act as if we're better than others, if that's what we're doing, we're clearly not having our heads on straight. A humble savior desires humble servants. Let's look more closely at a few other implications from this section. First, communion is for believers and for people in their care. It is something the church family does as the covenant community. Everything that Paul says presumes that this is occurring for the people who are in covenant relationship with God. Second, the fact that we should not partake uh, in an unworthy manner does not mean that we should never partake. Some people who are very aware of their own sin and need feel as if they are never worthy enough to participate. I think that's going too far. The sense here is that we should be thoughtful about how we're doing it, should confess our sins in a spirit of repentance, and should recommit ourselves to living in gratitude for God. If you could only have communion when you were in a state of absolute worthiness, none of us would ever be able to take it. Second, in verse 28, Paul says that the participants should examine themselves before they partake. This is a part of being reverent, uh, which Which is the opposite in this context of partaking in a way that is unworthy. To ensure this happens, some things are important to do. One is confessing our sin to God in prayer. We want to ensure our hearts and minds are in the right place before God. We should also be thoughtful about what we are actually doing. Have you ever wondered where the phrase hocus pocus comes from? If you look it up in the dictionary, it will say something about incoherent words or perhaps a certain series of words to have some sort of, you know, pretended magical effect. That person is speaking mumbo jumbo or dad look at my magic trick waving a wand hocus pocus the history of the expression actually goes back to communion some priests would lead a congregation through the service in latin many of them didn't understand the language they were speaking they had simply memorized or tried to memorize the wording in latin luke 22:19 says hoc est corpus meum meaning this is my body but priests who couldn't speak latin properly would bumble the words in a way which made the phrase sound like Hocus pocus. Other people who are listening in and who just so happen to know Latin picked up on this jumbling to the embarrassment of priests who are presiding over a sacrament saying words they themselves couldn't perfectly pronounce. Therefore, the origins of the phrase hocus pocus stand as a warning to us all. Are we being thoughtful? Are we truly aware of what we are saying and doing? Or do we say a set of prescribed words and go through these repeated actions without reflecting on what they mean, as if they were magic all by themselves, hocus pocus? Hmm. Be thoughtful. Back to the text. If people partake without discerning the body, says verse 29, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. The NIV says, recognizing the body. But what does this mean? This is surely about recognizing or discerning our unity in the body of Christ. This traces back to the problems the Corinthians were having in the first place because of their me first, you second custom. That had worked against the unity, and they should have a unity in the body of Christ. Recognizing or discerning the body had to do with reflecting upon and taking seriously our unity in him. Now, more generally, Paul's words could also be a reference to their lack of thoughtfulness and reverence, and that's something that we are wise to pay attention to today. Paul goes on to say that some people are even weak or sick, and some have died or fallen asleep, some translations say, which is a euphemism for death, because of how they have approached communion. This doesn't mean that all people will experience this, but in this situation, clearly that happened. Even still, it was to serve a greater goal. When they are judged, it is for their own good, so that their actions will be corrected and approved, which will help not only their practice, but their witness to others. As a final word, Paul says that they should follow what he has said, get their minds and hearts in order, to celebrate together not separately and with different amounts based on social class or status and that he will fill in the rest of the gaps when he sees them in person but for now what he has said should suffice. We end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So having gone through the text, let's move on to part 2, some summary comments about the meaning of communion for us today. First, communion is a means of grace communion is what is historically called this a means of grace now what is that it's it's a channel of god's generosity guidance and help in our lives a channel of god's generosity guidance and help in our lives the bible is a means of grace so is prayer we put communion in that category too when we actively engage in these practices god has given to us something special happens In his book, Encounters with Jesus, Tim Keller describes it like this. If you are a believer, then the Holy Spirit will do His work as you use the means of grace, reading and studying the Word, by yourself and in community, prayer, worship, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you don't use the means of grace, you are not giving the other advocate, meaning the Holy Spirit, scope to do His work. Or if you attend these things in a thoughtless, perfunctory way— You will be technically present, but closing your ear to his instruction, comfort, counsel, and advocacy, end quote. Yes, God works through communion to give you comfort, counsel, and advocacy. When we celebrate it with the right posture and attitude, Jesus is really and spiritually present to us. He comforts us, strengthens us, encourages us, and guides us. Through the years, people have told me about their own experiences during communion, they speak about a powerful presence of God all around them or within them. They are recentered through the midst of a battle. Now, not everyone feels something like that, and it's not about how you feel. More generally, communion is like rain on the garden of your life. Over time, God's grace works in and through you as you participate in what he has told you to do. Second, communion reminds us about Jesus and the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. In his loving, perfect, sacrificial, and hope-saturated life, death, and resurrection, he gives his life for ours, providing us peace with God as a gift. He fills us with his spirit and invites us into the kingdom ways he is renovating the world with his grace and truth as his hands and feet. It is a fact of human existence that we are prone to forgetfulness, and doubt, despair, and fear feed on forgetfulness. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. The book 100 Years of Solitude describes a town that suffers from a plague of forgetfulness. People start forgetting everything, starting with the oldest residence and working its way down. It's as if it's a contagious thing, and it certainly is very scary for everybody. One man starts putting notes on everything. This is a table, a lamp, a door. He goes out into the town and puts up two signs. One is a name of the town itself, because soon everyone will forget. The name of our village is Macondo. The other sign simply says, God exists. (laughs) To me, this is a reminder that there are certain things we need to remember in life. And at the end of it, a lot of stuff will not matter. But if we forget about God, and if we forget about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, none of the other stuff that we have remembered will matter very much. So knowing our weakness and to help us, God gives us communion to ground us again and again in the powerful love of God in the cross by helping us remember. Third, communion nourishes us with the spiritual presence of Christ himself. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus promised to always be with his people. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Communion means common union. We physically ingest his body and blood. Abide in me and I in you, he said in John fifteen four. In the early days of Christianity, outsiders heard rumors about what, what Christians did. As a result, some of them thought that these Jesus people were cannibals. They had overheard things about eating someone's body and drinking their blood. It was a fair assumption, but of course, they missed what was truly happening. Jesus himself, as the bread of life, is with us and nourishes us in a very real and spiritual way. He gives you a nourishment you cannot get on your own. There was a church father named Ignatius of Antioch. He called the gospel message the medicine of immortality. Since the bread and wine are ingested, perhaps we can think of them as the medicine of immortality. Now, Of course, we need to remember and be clear, taking communion doesn't save us. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. But this act helps us remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We partake of the bread and wine and are again nourished by him, the one who is himself the medicine of immortality. Fourth, communion reminds us about our common union as believers. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ, This was most certainly a part of what Paul was emphasizing to the divided church in Corinth. Today, it continues to remind us that we are, together, the one body of Christ, even though there are different denominations and languages and nations. This is true whether we are in Canada or Cambodia, New York or Nagasaki. All are one in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 3. Common union. Fifth, communion is a thanksgiving celebration. That's where the word Eucharist comes from. Even when we can get down about this or that in our lives, and even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can be thankful because God in Christ has already done for us everything that matters most. Whenever we celebrate his death on our behalf, we also celebrate his victory over that death. What greater gift! As we are reminded later in this same letter, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth, communion is taking an oath of allegiance. This has to do with the word sacrament itself. It traces back to an oath of allegiance, which a soldier would make to a king. Have you taken this sacramentum, the oath of allegiance? In this sense, an aspect of communion is pledging allegiance, yet again, to King Jesus, who was crucified on our behalf, but who is raised, ruling, renovating, and soon to return as global judge and savior. Communion is saying yes, time and time again, to King Jesus. When we partake, we proclaim his death until he comes again and are nourished, encouraged, and led forward as his students, servants, and soldiers, allegiance. So to summarize, in part one, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Uh, We looked in detail at the problems in Corinth as they tried to celebrate communion. We've looked at the words that we are to use and their meaning. We've talked about the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and the new covenant, We've talked about what it means to partake in a manner that is worthy. In part two, we brought together what communion continues to mean for us today. It is a means of grace. It reminds us about Jesus and the gospel. It nourishes us with the spiritual presence of Christ himself. It reminds us about our common union as believers. It is a Thanksgiving celebration. It is taking an oath of allegiance. Have you ever wondered why it is so special or why it means so much to you? What an amazing God we have who, in Christ, gives us all of this. As a final word, perhaps we could put in this as number seven. Communion gives us hope because it is a small foretaste of heaven. Jesus feasted with people, and he described heaven in terms of a banquet. When we partake, it is as if we are being reminded of that great and glorious day to come when all pain will be gone and there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain. For now we hurt, but it won't always be that way. For now we hunger, but it won't always be that way. For now we worry, but it won't always be that way. A pastor received a call from a local hospice. A young lady was dying. She was fairly new to town and hadn't yet found a church home. But back where she was from and when she was in better health, she would always go to church and found such meaning during communion. So one of the kind volunteers at the hospice searched Google and found a pastor who could come. She was in her 40s, and her mother was there at her side. An honest conversation ensued, and the woman asked if she could have communion one last time. The pastor broke the bread and poured the wine. Do this in remembrance of me. She smiled and put her head back on her pillow. A few days later, she passed away, or as my friends in the Salvation Army say, she was promoted to glory, where she took her place at the heavenly banquet table of Christ. With that in mind, as we bring this to a close, here is a prayer from the devotional book, The Valley of Vision. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. To God be the glory. Amen.